Seven edition coming off of depressing loss to Stanford that many people are saying is the worst loss of the Chris Peterson era. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. I am Andrew Berg. Uh, we are the third or fo- fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the entire internet. Remember to subscribe, rate, review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere else podcasts exist. We're starting to actually see some of those now and we r- appreciate it. We're also the official podcast of the Cody Pickett fan club. I feel obligated to say that every week, just on the off chance that he shows up. I'm joined this week by our regular producer and sometimes contributor, Rob Fox Curran. Rob, do you think we're any closer to getting Cody Pickett to drop in on one of our podcasts? You know, um, he hasn't responded to my numerous messages yet, so maybe someday he'll bless us with his presence. But until then, we can just cross our fingers and hope for the best. So, you know, maybe next week. Yeah, it sounds that's the most optimistic thing I've heard on that subject so far. So I'm just going to cross that off, put it in pencil for the rundown for next week. I don't think anybody really wants to spend a lot of time talking about or thinking about the Stanford game from Saturday. So let's just blow through this in a few minutes. Uh, I feel like it would be irresponsible to ignore it. Maybe we can learn something from talking about it. Uh, so let's let's start off talking about the defense a little bit. The struggles defensively didn't give up a ton of points, but the struggles did look pretty familiar. Uh, there were problems on, in the front seven, couldn't really stuff the run. The linebackers weren't filling the holes and tackling. The defensive line wasn't getting pressure on the quarterback. Even uh, Davis Mills, the backup for Stanford, kind of threw the ball all over the place to bigger receivers over our smaller defensive backs. Is there anything unique in this game to you, Rob, or was this just kind of more of the same that we've seen throughout the season? I will say, before I get into some of the negatives um, for the Huskies, Mills actually played a pretty good game. Um, you know, that was that was his best game thus far in, what, like three previous. And, um, he made some tough throws. Uh, That's uh, right, yeah. Clear, he clear, really did. Yeah, so I was actually pretty impressed by his overall performance. Um, but, yeah, uh, I think a lot of issues that we had seen in some previous games this year were really just exposed. Um, most notably the run defense, which has not been great this year so far, really just looked pretty awful. Cameron Scarlett ran for 151 yards on 33 carries, and it was just most prevalent and brutal in that fourth quarter there where we needed to get stops, and he just kept pushing the pile on third down. And then it's it's been talked about, but uh, the fact that Stanford started this game with seven scholarship offensive linemen who were able to suit up and ended the game with six, including three freshmen, and yet they pushed us around all night. Um, that's That makes you worry a little bit um, about how effective the defensive uh, line and just the front seven in general can be. Uh, pass rush, like you said, was almost non-existent uh, outside of, I think, our lone sack. Um, not, not the best showing in general. Oh, there was also the blown coverage again, um, just kind of like in the USC game. Uh, miscommunication between mm-hmm. Keith Taylor and uh, Williams. Um, Williams ended up getting pulled for a series before Brandon McKinney went in. Um, yeah, so there seemed to be some some degree of disarray and just 
poor play all up and down the defense, unfortunately. Yeah, statistically, Mills on passing downs was 8 for 11 for 126 yards. So 11.5 yards per attempt, which is just exceptional. And those are situations where, you know, third and long, second and long, they're behind the chains. We know they're likely to be passing the ball and couldn't do anything about it. And I think that speaks to what you were describing in terms of the lack of pressure on the quarterback and how their offensive line depleted as it was had very little trouble uh, stopping our pass rush or creating holes uh, for uh, any of the running backs, primarily Scarlett. Just looking back at the box score, it's, it seems strange to me that Kobe Parkinson only had two targets. He caught both the passes, felt like he had about 35 catches in the game. It was just he was so instrumental in everything they did. Uh, it really did, didn't it? Yeah, he was just in the middle of every play. He's making blocks and he's it, it was very frustrating watching him. I, although it's probably not fair. We were hard on the defense. It's probably not fair to put most of the blame there. It was really offensively with such a low point output, it seemed like there wasn't much of a plan B uh, early in the game. We tried the short passing game a lot. Sanford was willing to sit down on that, had some success running the ball, but really went away from that when Richard Newton got hurt uh, in the third quarter. And from then on, there was very little running and the passing game just, just wasn't there. It was probably Jacob Eason's least efficient game of the season, maybe his worst game of the season overall. Uh, what are your thoughts on the offensive performance overall? Was this a personnel issue, a play calling issue, uh, just an execution issue? What did you take away from that? Um, the the lame answer is kind of all of the above. But um, I will say I'm always really skeptical to criticize uh, offensive coordinators because I feel like it's one of the simplest and yet most like flawed takes that fans generally have after a game. It's just like, oh, man, like I could call a game better than that. Well, no, you probably can't. But that's fine. This is a this is a weird case where there were a lot of really questionable coaching decisions in this game. Um, uh, I know you and I, right before we started recording, we're talking about uh, the insistence to stick with the passing game. On the final three drives, we threw the ball 13 times and ran the ball zero times. Doubling down on something that didn't work for the entire game seems kind of questionable when the game is on the line. Uh, even taking into account um, a ticking clock uh, and having to manage for that. Uh, but what I, I think coach by coach Pete's count, there were five drops in this game. Um, Fuller, Bocelli, and Hunter Bryant all were responsible for at least one of those. Bryant dropped a touchdown or what was sure to be a touchdown. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a just a generally poor showing of the passing game. Uh, like you said, Eason, just a really inefficient game, albeit he wasn't getting help from anybody. Still some questionable decisions on his part. that was woof that was a rough one yeah it's interesting you mentioned going away from the run game late there's some logic that once newton went down it seemed like he was the preferred running back to that point but if you look at their success rate considering the down and distance he was below both ahmed and mcgrew for the game uh, at 56 percent, and they were both in the 60s it wasn't drastically different and each of the other two they combined for i think eight carries in the game so it's not like uh, there was a large sample to draw from, but it was strange that we went so far away from the run game, especially considering the looks that we were getting. It was, you know, play after play. We we do so much in terms of adjusting play calling for what the defense is giving us. It's the whole offensive philosophy is to be able to do things from different looks and formations and motions 
uh, and have players who are smart enough to adapt. And there was just very little adaptation. It was it was kind of we're going to keep running these crosses uh, or the the little in routes to Fuller through the ball to Fuller seventeen times. That's very one dimensional, and that's really not uh, what our offense is supposed to be. And the drops, like you said, were very aggravating. So I think when we take that away, the the discussion was was this the worst loss of the Chris Peterson era at UW? I went back and looked at a couple. Uh, other candidates. Tell me what you think between this one, the loss. These are all away games, interestingly, at Stanford in 2019, the 23-13 This is going to be loss. brutal. Uh. Yeah, I know. It's it's. We'll, we'll move through this quickly because it's it's. If I like hear you pouring gasoline on yourself at the other end, I'll just cut this segment short. Uh, last year, the game obviously at Cal, the 12-10 loss, and then two years ago uh, at Arizona State, the 13-7 loss. So in those three games, I think we're totaling what uh, 30 combined points in the three games. Uh, where would you say this game stands in relation to those other two? Because it kind of felt similar, just like you kept expecting the offense to do something better, and it just kept banging their head against the wall and never really making any progress. Yeah, you know, I was actually at that Stanford game two years ago where we lost, and I remember you know walking away from that game being like. That's that's the season. We can't win the Pac-12 championship this year. We still technically have a shot at the Pac-12 championship this year. We we need to beat Oregon and then for Oregon to lose again. Not controlling your own destiny is far from ideal. Um, but that said, this one feels more like there are some serious systemic issues with this team as opposed to them just having an off night. Um, inexplicably, uh, or you know, chalking it up to, hey, we always play bad in Arizona. Night games in the desert, man, go figure. But um, yeah, I don't know. This this one had an especially negative sting to it, where I think a lot of the flaws of this team all reared their ugly heads in the same game, um, and it makes you start to question more about uh, not just individual game performances, but what's going on with the program that would produce. Uh, an effort like we saw on Saturday. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. There are always going to be people who are pessimistic coming out of They take every loss is a sign that something is fundamentally broken in the program. Like this is, we've, we've topped out. We can't get any better. We have to expect it to be this bad. Uh, I don't believe in that. I think most losses kind of come down to a, a couple plays or a couple decisions or some personnel moves. I, I think in this situation, it does leave me a little bit more uh, curious. Now, I, I think the long-term problems are all fixable, but it makes me wonder about both the uh, offensive system and also Jacob Eason's ability to maximize the opportunities within it. And like you said earlier, there are all these drops and you can't put that on him. And maybe we're having a completely different discussion. Like he really is making the right decisions, making the right reads and syncing up with his receivers. Uh, but I do worry that there's a disconnect there, that something's just not clicking correctly, either in his decision making or the coaching staff's decision making, and it's going to have lasting problems in terms of execution. I will say, as I was looking back at this list of worst losses, now in five years, Chris Peterson has never lost a game to a team that failed to make a bowl. Every game, every Washington loss under Peterson has been to a bowl eligible team. Another way of saying that would be he's only lost to winning teams, except that one of those was Arizona State in 2015, who was bowl eligible at six and six, and then lost their bowl to end six and seven. And that was a loss. But all the rest of them were against winning teams. 
So maybe that's a small silver lining. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if Stanford can continue that streak because they're not currently looking like a bowl-bound uh, team. Uh, but while we're on the subject of silver linings, let's talk about some reasons for optimism. You and I kind of put our heads together earlier and came up with three large, large-ish programmatic reasons to be optimistic about this team. And I'll, I'll give the first one, uh, which is the overall track record of the team over the last five years under Chris Peterson's watch, which is just fantastic. There have been two Pac-12 titles, college football playoff, three New Year's Day bowls. I think that's that's for the first five years as a coach, that's about as much as you could ask for. And if every five-year period looks roughly the same, if he wins the Pac-12 40% of the time or even less than that, I would want him to be coaching this team until he doesn't want to coach anymore. I think if, and, and I think that's likely, I think he's going to be right around 10 wins year in and year out with competition for Pac-12 titles, winning it here and there one, two, three times out of five years, going to New Year's Day bowl games. And, and that's pretty much what I hope for out of the program. I know those games haven't gone our way so far, but that may be changing. And that kind of goes into the reason for optimism that you were going to talk about. Yes, it does. But um, I just want to say also, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, it's it's easy for people to jump to conclusions after a single game. Um, you know, that's that tends to be a little ridiculous. One game usually doesn't make a se- season and or, you know, the implications are not as severe as, as one would could be led to think. Um, most programs in the country would be thrilled to have Chris Peterson we are very lucky to have him and got to enjoy it while we can. Um, and when you say most, we're talking like 126 out of 130 or something like very that. Much There's the, like the vast majority. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but then on that note, uh, like you so nicely queued up. Yeah. There is a lot of optimism for the future. Um, they've been absolutely re- killing it on the recruiting trail. Uh, the last three recruiting classes have all been in the top 20. I believe this year is 12 as of that's a right week so ago when they picked up the commitment from local five-star. I think that's exactly right at this point. That obviously can change between now and signing day, but we're at 12 right now. Yeah, I can never fully keep track of these things because you never know when some random <laughs> five-star commits to you know Mississippi State or something. And you're just like, oh, wow, okay, now we're 14. But yeah. uh, with that in mind also... Um, Next year's recruiting class, the guys who are juniors right now in high school uh, in the state of Washington, there are three five stars, uh, three guys who are top 20 players in the country. And one of them is already committed to the UW, um, Sam Heward, son of Luke. Um, and then the other two are both very fond of the program and um, people people like the Huskies odds of picking them up. And beyond them, there's actually quite a bit of other local talent. Um, a couple of guys again who are favored to end up with the Huskies. So I mean, this this thing's just been rolling, and it's gonna keep rolling. Yeah, and you mentioned that this isn't a new thing. Uh, Gabby and I talked about Savell Smalls last week, but even if you go back one year and two years in the recruiting cycles, they've built out a future offensive and defensive line with guys like Tuatelli and Bandies and Latu uh, on the defensive side. And maybe like Moreo coming in this year, uh, just the offensive line built out maybe even stronger than the defensive line or, you know, comparably strong. Julius Bulo, Nathan Kalepo, probably going to get more playing time uh, in the next couple years. I'm so excited for Leonardo Latu's future. Oh, God. Oh, he my God. So good. 
And then Rosengarten and Hatchet are, again, two of the top uh, offensive line recruits that UW has ever signed, and they're both coming in next year. Uh, so we're t- these, these are kinds of the things, the kind of things that when we have struggled against Penn State, Ohio State, Alabama, Auburn, it's largely, and even in the game against Stanford, as we were just talking about, we're losing the battles on the lines. There have been some issues at wide receiver and linebacker, but if we can dominate in the trenches, it clears up a lot of those issues. And it seems like we're on track to be doing that. And I think that kind of bleeds into uh, the third the third reason for optimism that we noted down, which was some of the young players who are already in the program. Latu's already super exciting to watch. We've seen flashes from Puka Nakua, uh, Richard Newton, who, you know, get well soon. It, there was uh, Chris Peterson's press conference kind of implied that he may not be as injured as it looked at the time. If he can come back this year, that would just be phenomenal. Uh, I think we're in okay shape at running back without him, but it, it, you know, you just don't want to see long-term injuries and he's very fun to watch. But even on top of that, Trent McDuffie, uh, Taki and Thule on the defensive interior and just a lot more guys to come. This is, you know, foundational building blocks for the program that are going to be around for three and four years. And it's, it's lots to watch for, even if the team it doesn't end up, you know, you mentioned controlling our destiny earlier doesn't end up in the Rose Bowl this year. It doesn't end up even in the Pac-12 title game. There's a lot to watch for, and just watching these guys develop is going to be super fun over the next uh, six to eight weeks, regardless. Uh, so I think with that, I, let's let's try to end on a high note for segment number one. We're putting Stanford behind us. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to preview Arizona, which has its own frightening elements to it. But we'll be right back, and we'll talk through that in just a moment. Welcome back. We're going to move right along to Tucson, Arizona, where the Huskies make their roughly every other year, sometimes every third year trip down to the desert, which almost never goes well. Rob, why do you think it is? We're going down there. It's an eight o'clock game, which is going to be super late. It's on FS1. At least it's not uh, uh, Quint Kessinich, who seems to be a jinx for the Huskies. Uh, but late game, FS1. Tucson, Arizona, Wildcats, Kevin Sumlin. Why is this such a problem for the Huskies year in and year out? Well, I mean, depending on the time of day, you can always talk about the heat. I just Googled what the temperature is in Tucson right now. Uh, 84, um, so not cold, um, which is, you know, why we're definitely playing a night game down there. So chalk that up to a minor minor win or minor victory. Um, it's, you know, about as far as they have to travel in conference, I think, Un- unless Colorado is technically further, but it's it's you know more of a flight than most of their away games. Uh, the environment is certainly different. Um, road games can be weird. Uh, I I don't know. This is this has always been baffling to Husky fans. I don't know. Do you do you have thoughts? Well, it's it's also strange that it that it's not just Arizona, but also Arizona State that this curse kind of pervades the entire state. I think this particular vintage of Arizona, there are a couple reasons to be a little bit concerned more than you normally would be. One is that with Khalil Tate back at the lineup to go with uh, Gary Brightwell and J.J. Taylor, Taylor's questionable. It sounds like he's probably going to play. That's uh, an impressive stable of runners, running backs and a running quarterback. Uh, they Tate obviously also able to throw the ball, but with the way our run defense has been shaping up this year, uh, it's a little scary to think about that three-headed monster. They certainly spread it out more than USC Stanford, so maybe that gives our secondary more opportunity and pursuit to come up in support of the linebackers. 
but it is a little bit scary. If you're looking for a reason to be a little bit more optimistic, I think it would be Arizona's defense certainly leaves the promise that we could outscore them. They've given up 40 twice and 33 times. Uh, they have this very strange stat. For anybody who watched that Hawaii game, um, I, I don't think the Arizona defense has been keeping people up at night. Yeah, right. They ha- and it, It's very strange to think that there's even any risk of losing to a team that lost to Hawaii, given what our game with Hawaii looked like. But, you know, there it is. <laughs> this is where we've, what we've come to at this point. It, it is a risk, and, and going to Arizona is always a risk. Uh, they have this very strange statistical oddity. Every team in the Pac-12 has, has faced, given up or faced, between 30 and 35 pass attempts per game. And Arizona's faced 47 pass attempts per game. So they're not just far above average. They're like three times the spread of the rest of the conference above the highest team. So that's, that's extremely weird. Some of that is they've played Texas Tech, Northern Arizona, throws the ball a lot, Hawaii throws the ball a lot, and so on. Uh, but they're actually worse against the run. So hopefully we'll be able to kind of focus on the running game. They don't get a lot of pressure on the quarterback, which is a big help to Eason, who we've seen is not uh, the best when he's under pressure. So I think this is one of those games where we may give up around 30, but hopefully we can score closer to 35 or 40 and still come away with it. The line is Huskies by six and a half. If you had to make a pick, um, pick to win and also that six and a half line, Where do you think you're coming down? Gosh, um, you know, I've been optimistic about the Huskies all year and I predicted they're going to win every single game. And of course, uh, Cal and then last week has left me, as I know, felt a lot of people feeling a little burned. Looking at the over under two, 58.5. You know, I would like to think regardless of Arizona woes, this team should be able to score at least 30 points against Arizona. Gosh, I'm I, I am a little worried about what Arizona's offense, like you pointed out, uh, the running game and running QB, like extremely talented running QB, what that might do to our defense. But you know, they've our, our defense hasn't given up more than twenty three points this year, right? That's that's the highest. So yeah, I like I like the Huskies on the spread, and I would I would I might take the under though on the over under at fifty eight point five. Yeah, I, I think it'll be, I think both those numbers are fairly reasonable. I think the six and a half, we're going to be right around that number uh, when it comes down to it. I think it's going to be about a one touchdown game unless the defense just plays much better than we've seen it play against the run. It's interesting that we've got this far into the season. We haven't really faced a running quarterback yet. Uh, there's a couple quarterbacks who have the threat of running, but nobody has really sold out as a running quarterback, uh, certainly to the degree that that Tate will, likely will be. Uh, coming up. So let's move on outside of the Husky-centric world uh, that we live in, talk a little bit about Pac-12 football more generally. It was a very weird week. There were four Pac-12 games, um, and all four underdogs at least covered the spread. Three of them won outright. Stanford, uh, obviously, won as an underdog. Arizona beat Colorado as an underdog, and Oregon State went to UCLA, also won as an underdog. Cal kept it closer than expected against Oregon. Oregon only scored 17 points on that Cal defense. So is this just a whole season of parity in the Pac-12? And is there even a favorite that you can discern at this point with the way things have gone uh, to date? Oh, man. The Pac-12 is achieving what it's been aiming for, which is parity. And it's a freaking disaster. Um, and and you're seeing it as the league just devours itself. Um 
some of these some of these games are pretty interesting though um i don't know if you watched the oregon state ucla game but um i mean oregon oregon state boat raced ucla in the beginning there and then it kind of leveled out um as the game progressed but um that was that was a that was a bad look for ucla um they uh what there was a little like it, it's not an onside kick like the the drop uh yeah yeah the pop-up yeah. kick whatever it is, yes, exactly. is the name for that yeah kick off. oregon state Oregon State recovers it and like I I haven't seen that one in a while so th- that was that was kind of fun to watch um I don't know did you did you have a favorite non-husky game that you watched this weekend I think that was high on the list for exactly the reason you said that it, it, it it's I think everybody kind of feels happy for Oregon State uh obviously Jonathan Smith was there were some mixed feelings about him when he was the offensive coordinator for UW but still want to see him do well away from Washington. And to date, hasn't really been a threat to the Huskies. So it's just all fun, unlike Justin Wilcox, who also had a couple stops in between, didn't you know leave and then immediately take over Cal. But Smith kind of is like an extension of the Chris Peterson coaching tree. So seeing uh, Oregon State do as well as they're doing, now with a backup running back, Artavis Pierce uh, in the lineup for Jamar Jefferson, uh, and and just doing extremely well. I did. I saw not the whole game, but two weeks in a row. Watched chunks of Oregon State. I've been really impressed with their offensive line play. That they're undersized, and these are not high end recruits. But they're they've been developing these players well, and they're blocking really well. They're opening up holes for whoever's running the ball, uh, and it, it's kind of cool to see. Um, you know, in terms of favorite within the conference, I think right now I would go with Utah. I think they did a good job. Uh, bouncing back from that loss to USC, which feels to me like a bit of an aberration. I, I watched that game and there are big parts of the game during the, the lightning storm uh, at Husky Stadium. And it just felt like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm confusing two games. That was a Stanford-USC game, which also felt like a very weird game. But the the uh, the era, that was a Friday night game, the Utah-USC game, but also felt like a very weird game. Uh, and uh, it seemed like Utah very easily could have won that game if just one or two things went differently. And they bounced back really well against Wazoo. I think they're set up to to make a nice run. I think uh, they probably have as good a defense as anybody in the conference. We'll see if Oregon can maintain the extremely high-level defense they've been playing. Uh, and uh, it's going to be a good fight if if the Huskies don't get back into it between Oregon and Utah. Those are two teams with kind of conservative offenses and very, very good defenses. Hopefully doesn't mean another 10-6 championship game, but it's, it's, I think those two teams are, are both very solid teams, if not national title contenders. Neither of them are going to disgrace the conference by being in the conference title game. Are you seeing it any differently kind of between those two at this point for you two? No, I would agree with you that uh, I really like Utah and, um, it, uh, you know, Oregon, Oregon does look very good. Um, Auburn is having a... Uh, and you know that that makes Oregon's loss to them, which really should have been a win, you know, not as severe. Um, they're realistically the pack making the playoff, albeit. Oh God, I don't even want to go down that scenario. You have uh, where I would lie there. Probably screw Oregon, but um, yeah, hey, good. bare minimum. It was uh, it was it was good to see um, Cal rough up Oregon a little bit. How ugly was the first half of that game? Um, and then Justin Herbert probably had his worst game of the season thus far. Oh God, yeah, yeah. I mean, Cal makes it difficult for everybody. Their defense really makes you uncomfortable, I think is the best way to say it. Their defensive backs hit hard. They make it hard to catch passes and hold on to them. 
just across the board, they make it very difficult. I, I felt kind of bad for them because they just didn't have without Garbers in the lineup, who's yeah, back at QB, an average quarterback at best. But Modster in the lineup, it just took away any chance they had of moving the ball consistently. And they were pretty much going to have to win that game seven to something if they were going to yeah, win and it. And as much as I hate to say it, Oregon's defense is very good. Uh, Kayvon Thibodeau is, is living up to the billing. Yes, it's the Auburn oh, game. Man. Yeah. That sucks. <laughs> the Auburn obviously went on that fourth quarter run. But other than that, Oregon hasn't given up double di- double figure points in a game all year. I, I don't think that's going to continue. Uh, but I haven't seen an obvious flaw in their defense yet. It, it it seemed like a couple years ago they had a lot of the personnel and they just kind of ran around like chickens with their heads cut off. And now they are playing much better positionally. <laughs> Everybody knows where they're supposed to be and is doing their job instead of trying to do everything all the time. And it, they look really, really tough. We've we've jocked Oregon enough. Let's 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 get off of Oregon. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's not talk about that anymore. Although this is related to that. Auburn losing to Florida. So in a way, this is getting back to insulting Oregon because Oregon lost to this team who couldn't even beat Florida, who was down to their third string, last rock, last uh, scholarship quarterback for a while. Uh, so yeah, take that, Oregon. You lost to Auburn, who lost to Florida, who was down to their third string quarterback. Uh, that was an interesting game. Puts Florida in a really good spot. I think they're up to number five in the standings right now, maybe number six or seven. Uh, and they play LSU this week. So that's a matchup of, very high-rated teams. Michigan uh, pulled off a, speaking of very low-scoring games, 10-3 win over Iowa. Those are probably the biggest games outside of the uh, Pac-12. Michigan, Harbaugh had... Another ugly game. Yeah, and it was ugly. Uh, Seems like Michigan really prefers to play uh, a simpler offense. (laughs) Like When they play a team like Iowa who comes straight at them, they really don't have trouble with that. Yeah. so and, and you get a, any of those games stand out to you? You see anything outside of the pack that really is looking appetizing to you at this point? Well, I'm a little biased living in uh, Minnesota. The Golden Gophers are currently undefeated yeah. at the moment. Uh, they played almost no one, and people hear that. But uh, there, are, there are high hopes in Minnesota for what they might be able to do in the Big, big Ten. Have they started getting... Uh, Top 25 votes yet? I know you're right. Oh, I see that they are. They have snuck in. They are number 25. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, they they <laughs> snuck out with one possession wins against Georgia Southern, the South Dakota State Jackrabbits, Fresno State, Purdue. But they did obliterate Illinois and Lovey Smith this week. So that's at least something going in their favor. It is kind of fun to see that. I, I grew up kind of in the geographic footprint of the Gophers. So I, I like for them to do good things. And uh, I guess they are currently leading the Big Ten Legends and Leaders West Division. So that's that's at least they're headed in the right direction. So goal, goal. keep throwing the boat, PJ Fleck. Red River rivalry slash shootout, Oklahoma, Texas. Any thoughts on that game? Who would you pick between those two right now? Um, Oklahoma just seems borderline unstoppable at this point. What a machine. Their offense is freaking remarkable. Um, it's really hard for me to see Texas, you know, staying in this game for very long i mean not not that texas is bad um it's more just oklahoma's playing at you know the ohio state alabama clemson level at this point in my mind i i really just don't think texas will be able to slow them down i don't know I, do you think texas has a chance yeah i agree yeah. no i oklahoma is i looked earlier today they were a, a 10 to 10 and a half point favorite i think that might be a little low i think they will be a, a probably a double digit winner in this game even though they had a little bit of trouble with kansas last week before they pulled away in the end the one thing that stands out to me about this game is 
I, no disrespect to Jalen Hurts, but I think it's preposterous to talk about him as a Heisman candidate at this point. Because if everybody who plays quarterback in that system does the same thing, it stops being special. Like the Heisman is supposed to be the most exceptional player. And by definition, he's not exceptional. He's doing the exact same thing that uh, Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray did in the same system. And we already saw him play in another team. Like this is, by definition, Lincoln Riley's system. Not to say that he's a bad quarterback, but he's not the best player in the country. We already know that. We knew that before the year, and good for him for playing as well as he is. But I think the Jalen Hurts Heisman candidacy is a, a media narrative that was created to uh, because it's a really cool story to talk about Hurts versus Tua for the Heisman, and it's going to end up being that way because there is no reason for a Heisman to exist outside of media narrative. But if we're talking about who's the best player in the country, it's it, it's mind-boggling to me that you could suggest that any Oklahoma quarterback is the best player in the country if they do the same thing every year. I don't know. Maybe that's an absurd point of view, but I, 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 it, it's crazy to me to think that Hurts has a chance to win the Heisman right now. I mean, are, are you under the impression like the rest of America it's going to be Tua? I, maybe. I don't know. I, I, it, 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 he probably in the end, if they remain undefeated, it's the way the Heisman voting has got ha, works now is very strange that it almost exclusively goes to the quarterback with the best stats. Uh, If there's one undefeated team, that undefeated team's quarterback will win it. If there's multiple undefeated teams, the one with the best stats on one of those teams will win it. If there's no undefeated team, it'll be the quarterback with the best stats on a one-loss team. It's like that's the hierarchy order, and I don't know why. That doesn't make anybody the best player. So so what you're saying is system quarterback Jalen Hurts is going to win the Heisman. Yeah, if they stay undefeated, he probably will. I would probably pick Jonathan Taylor if the season ended right now because I think Wisconsin has exceeded my expectations to such a degree uh, that it stands out, and he's largely responsible for that. They don't really have much of a passing game, and they're destroying uh, some pretty decent teams because he's so good. Um, I, I That is meaningful to me. Uh, yes, two is amazing. Trevor Lawrence is amazing. I know he hasn't had the same results this year, uh, but I, I, Justin I, Fields is amazing. Justin yeah. Fields is unbelievable. You could easily vote for him, but yeah, the Jalen Hurts. We haven't even named my season. favorite. Oh, who's that? I'm a I'm a Joe Burrow guy. Oh, Joe know. Burrow. Yeah, I brought him up. I think two or three times before on the podcast. Uh, yes, I I do enjoy me some Joe Burrow, uh, and I enjoy me some Coach O as well. So the the better Joe Burrow does. Uh, and the better LSU does. I think this all together helps everybody. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, so let's wrap up. Uh, talk a little bit about recommendations before we sign off. Uh, do you what do you have to offer as the most entertaining non-football thing of the last week? It seems like we've kind of uh, uh, focused in on TV and movies over the last few weeks. I think Gabe gave us a couple stand-up comedians, but I think uh, it speaks to our. Uh, overall proclivity to watch television and there's nothing wrong is it bad that i just have more tv shows ready to go no please do i think that's probably what okay so um i i know actually quite a few people who don't like this show um but i've been a fan of it thus far and season two was just released disenchantment creator matt groaning the simpsons it's it's a really funny show kind of a preposterous plot fantasy world princess the friends an elf and a demon and it you know chaos and adventure ensues i'm thoroughly entertained by it um and then also rick and morty comes out i think this weekend so that's something to be excited about 
I have never even heard of Disenchantment, so that's a good recommendation. Ooh, uh, thanks for bringing up something that's completely off my radar. Uh, I, I this isn't a, like a humble brag thing, uh, in, given my introduction, but I've, I love reading. I read a lot. Uh, when I, I think I mentioned before that my wife and I had a child this summer, and I was trying to decide what to read at that point. Uh, only tangentially related, but it did cut into my reading time. So over the last three months, I've been very slowly picking my way through War and Peace, wow. which is an exceptionally yeah. long book. And I'm finally now in the like the last few pages of it. Uh, I'm actually not going to recommend that because I think if you're going to dive into Russian literature, specifically Tolstoy, I preferred uh, Anna Karenina. There are long swaths of War and Peace that are like political statements or historical polemics where he's trying to argue in defense of a specific Russian general who at the time he was writing it had kind of fallen in disfavor based on uh, it, like political disagreements with the czar at the time. And it, you know, it's well-written, but honestly, the, the parts of the book, it, it, to me, the thing that makes him a great writer is that he can very simply describe uh, really complex human interactions and emotions. And I think there's more of that in Anna Karenina, which I read a few years ago. So if you're going, if you only read one Tolstoy novel in the next three months, make it Anna Karenina. Um, I have a feeling zero people who listen to this will actually take that recommendation, but that's okay. Um, there's going to be someone, there's going to be some, somebody's going to hear this and they're going to be inspired. It's been on their list. <laughs> I've also slogged through that. I would also say it's worth it at the end. You know, you'll, you'll bare minimum, you'll feel accomplished. Yeah, right. Once that's you are true. Finished. I do feel accomplished. I, I have, yeah, I'm, I'm in the historical notes after the epilogue. It's just insane how many post end of the book sections of the book there are. Um, so that's why I'm comfortable saying I'm, I'm finished with it at this point. Anyway, I think that speaking of things that are finished, we should probably wrap up at that point. Let's hope that we get in and out of the desert safely this week and we'll have a more cheerful podcast next week where we're not scraping around looking for silver linings. Uh, Rob, any final thoughts before we sign off? Screw the desert. We need a win. Go dogs. Can't argue with any of that. So we'll talk to you all next week. And hopefully at that point, we will be joined by Cody Pickett himself. Mama, you